0: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
1: Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J.
0: Hey, it's your friendly E.R. MacGyver, Dr. Ward.
2: And this is Praz the Sandman, turning your sweet dreams into ghoulish nightmares for one episode a year. It's <laughs> time for the spooky Halloween episode. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I gotta tell you guys, I have so much fun putting together... These Halloween episodes every year, just digging up every single possible fact I can, picking at every bone, and leaving no grave unturned.
0: Nice. Ding 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 ding, ding, ding. Yeah. That's a lot of puns. I've been sitting in my mummy's workroom, and that's all I got.
2: Yeah. Well, let's not wrap this up right away. Well done.
1: So let's start by talking about what do you guys think of as traditional halloween monsters frankenstein
2: werewolves
1: when i think of horror movie monsters you know the classics come up certainly your your serial slashers like jason and freddy but you can't forget the classics like zombies ghouls and of course ghosts uh, do either of you believe in ghosts
2: i haven't excluded the possibility of their existence
0: I think I'm keeping well, an open mind about this.
1: When you watch a lot of ghost movies, what are the first things that people who are in a haunted house tend to feel? You know, aside from blood running down the walls or the furniture rearranging itself. What physical sensations do they often describe? Chills.
0: Chills, maybe, um, hearing, hearing some weird sounds or feeling, you know, goosebumps.
1: In the late 1950s, a French robotics le- researcher, Vladimir Gavro, noticed that that one doesn't of his sound french
0: assistants- <laughs> that sounds like he's from Transylvania
1: <laughs> you know dracula working in his robotics right. lab noticed that one of his assistants was you know bleeding from the ears ivro got really fascinated by this and rather than continuing to research what were presumably killer robots, he would sneak up next to his assistants and hold a bunch of different vibrating pipes and tuning forks next to them, trying to recreate this ear-bleeding effect.
2: Would he then come to suck their blood? It does
1: seem like he's kind of a vampire with an odd fetish, doesn't it?
0: What What was actually his legitimate science? Oh, robotics. Robotics.
1: Gevros soon realized that taking a tuning fork of the right length and girth could cause a number of unpleasant effects, ranging from mild irritation, such as him holding up a bunch of pipes near grad <laughs> students, to serious pain, like bleeding from the ears of those same grad students. And what he had actually discovered, aside from an awesome new way to torture interns, is infrasound.
0: Infrasound.
2: Interesting
1: infrasound is noise that a low enough frequency that you don't consciously hear it, but your ears still sense it. And the process of receiving sensory input without your conscious mind understanding where it's coming from wreaks havoc with your emotions. So specifically, Mm. researchers found that sounds between 7 and 19 hertz could induce fear, dread, or panic. It's almost like You know dog whistles, you blow on them, and dogs can get all sorts of confused, but we don't hear a thing.
0: Mm -hmm. Right.
1: So infrasound is basically a human whistle. We can't really register anything that we're hearing, but it causes sensations in us of unease, dread, and fear. So Gavro became absolutely obsessed after this with infrasonic devices or with infrasonic weapons in the form of huge pipe devices. After one experiment that he named the vibratory envelope of death. The
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something you would find at like a sex toy shop or something, I don't know.
1: So we've moved from tech Dracula into full-on mad <laughs> science.
0: <laughs> vibratory envelope of death, letter. wow.
1: After this vibratory envelope of death experiment, the whole team suffered internal spasms as organs hit critical resonance. It almost sounds like something out of a sci fi movie, right? That you'd use to fight off aliens.
0: Doctors, what do you think medically could explain could explain blood coming out of people's ears and this this awful feeling?
2: It's interesting because I would think that if anything higher frequencies would be more likely to cause trauma to that level, you know, that you'd actually start to bleed.
1: We have three small bones in our in what traditionally makes up our eardrum, which right. I suppose if you had either too high treble or bass could resonate fast enough at to a point where you would break those bones. You would just be taking it sound. And it's no Different than weaponizing, you know, something as simple as an ultrasound machine, which we use to image anything from your gallbladder to your unborn sure. child. Absolutely.
0: Sure. Yeah. And I, I suppose if you put enough energy and enough um, energy travels through as sound waves, they could cause damage.
1: Mother Nature is actually creating this type of low frequency vibration all the time: volcanoes, earthquakes, strong ocean waves. All of these can create infrasound, so even animals can create it, and I loved this, tigers are particularly well-known as a source. The frequency of a tiger's roar is around 18 hertz, so remember, 7 and 19 hertz are the range that makes you feel uneasy, and a tiger's roar right up against it. So all of the things that create this sound are huge, powerful, and dangerous. So evolution might have actually taught us that this means bad news. A group of British scientists did another experiment where they snuck in low-frequency sounds at a live concert. You know, since scientists love nothing more than inducing feelings of fear and terror in unsuspecting citizens. Um, Most of the concertgoers had no idea what was going on. So one minute, they were just listening to a rock concert, and... Then this infrasound was sort of piped in underneath the music, and a feeling of dread invaded their hearts. At the end of the experiment, about 22% of the people involved reported chills, depression, and feelings of unexplainable dread.
0: Maybe it was just a Nickelback concert. <laughs> and it was, no, I, I, I mean, I believe it. Apparently, they even tried to do this as psychological warfare in, in the Vietnam War. There was something called the urban funk campaign, we we as Americans, we try to um, engage in psychological warfare by using these infrasonic disruptions.
1: So now we have a phenomenon that occurs in nature, is invisible, is imperceptible on a level that you're aware of, but can spontaneously make you feel a rational fear, even if you're sitting in an empty room. Does that sound like anything to you guys?
0: Uh, a bad Tinder date? <laughs> I don't know.
1: In an empty room?
0: But really bad really date. bad day. <laughs>
1: well, traditionally, this is what most people describe as one of the first and primary signs of a haunting. An unexplained feeling of fear or dread.
0: So you're saying there may be a, a scientific explanation behind it.
1: And I know what you're thinking. What about the ghosts that we see? You know, like Casper or Slimer or third famous television movie ghost.
0: A uh, ghost, <laughs> the, the 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 pottery guy, <laughs> the sexy pottery, pottery guy. <laughs>
1: so, how do you how do you gentlemen like to imagine ghosts? Do you prefer to think of the bedsheet with eye holes cut out, a la Beetlejuice, or more of the old timey, flickering, dressed in you know whatever clothes they died in, mm. sort of ghost?
2: The white ones tend to be more scary, I would say. The, the
0: sheet with eyes ho- eye holes cut out in them? That's because we're minorities. We think that's like a, <laughs> that's, that's a KKK. That's a Klansman. For me, well, it's like like a little girl who shows up in the middle of a hallway who says, you know, want to play with me, that sort of. A, oh, my God, that's horrifying. Three,
1: four, hope that you don't snore. Five, six, grab your food. <laughs> nine, ten, help you wake again. Oh, I'm so and then they're tomorrow. out. Another scientist... Vic Tandy was busy studying machinery and sound. And after one particularly strange experience, when a gray shape sat next to his desk for several minutes, you know, one of your traditional eyehole ghosts, Vic, rather than being scared, was determined, like a Scooby-Doo gang member, to figure what the hell was going on. So rather than, you know, having an exorcist come and bless the facility... He set about examining the lab, and he eliminated gas poisoning and rogue equipment, and he realized that the ghost was always seen in a certain section of the lab, and he also learned that if he put a metal sheet in a vice or clamps, it would just spontaneously vibrate uncontrollably in that same section of the lab for no apparent reason, which to me, of course, says scientific proof of ghosts. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But it wasn't?
1: No, sadly, it wasn't. A silent exhaust fan was sending out low-frequency vibrations that bounced back and forth on the lab's walls until they formed a powerful sonic wave at... You want to take a guess? How many hertz? Uh, 7 to
0: 19. 18.1? 17 to
1: 19. It, yeah, actually. And according to a NASA study, it was powerful enough to resonate with the average human eyeball. So remember, we talked about... If your ears resonate at a certain frequency, you can actually cause them to get injured, lose your hearing, or bleed. That's what we think of, you know, when you see the opera singer shattering glass. But NASA did a study where if due to a certain frequency your eyeballs resonate, they don't explode, don't worry. It's not that much of an eye-popping experience, but instead you get smears across your vision. Uh, shapes that appear in the corner of your eye. The eye is vibrating just enough to register something static, like the frame of your glasses or a speck of dust, as a large moving shape.
0: Our senses are not that reliable.
1: Vic went on to test the explanation that he had discovered in the lab in a local nearby haunted abbey. Now, I think we all know how most horror movies would go from this point forward.
2: So that's when they walk into the, the, the Haunted hab- Abbey alone and they start hearing things? Yeah, so according to the
1: locals, as soon as someone would step into the cellar, they would freeze up, see strange gray ghosts, and have to leave because of a sense of nausea. Either one of you care to take a guess what uh, Vic discovered in the, the Haunted Abbey?
2: The number 18.5 comes to mind again.
1: Yeah, he discovered that the shape of the cellar, meaning the hallway leading to it as well as the nearby factories all around contributed to making the haunted cellar a perfect resonating chamber with vibrations at, say it with me now, 18 hertz. They were most powerful right at the entrance of the cellar where the majority of people became sick and terrified.
2: And I wonder if yeah. they do that at these haunted houses. They're mean a lot
0: Don't you wish at the end of... Like, at least one Scooby mystery, it was a real ghost? Because it seems like every Scooby mystery ends up, oh, you know what, there was an 18.5 hertz infrasound.
1: Well, I'm happy to open with a ghost story, and I think we'll close out with one too. But in the meantime, I don't want to bury any leads here, but this next spooky medical tale is more in your general field of expertise, Ward. Have you ever heard of The Toxic Woman?
0: I've never heard of THE Toxic Woman. I don't know if that's a medical term. (laughs) But this lady sounds like a doozy.
1: The Toxic Woman is the story of... Well, let let me set the stage for you guys. We'll make it a proper story. February 19th, 1994. Gloria Ramirez suffered from advanced cervical cancer. She had been in, if not her usual state of health, at least her usual state of misery, when around 8.15 p.m., an ambulance brought her to the emergency room at Riverside General. Confused and disoriented, she was showing signs of tachycardia and chain-stokes respiration, progressively deeper and faster breathing. At first, the medical staff tried to sedate her. Ramirez was unresponsive to treatment. Doctors attempted to defibrillate her heart, And it was then they noticed an oily sheen on her skin, as well as a fruity, garlic-like odor emanating from her mouth. One nurse attempted to draw her blood, the result of which was a strong ammonia-like smell that wafted out of the syringe. A medical Mm. resident noticed there were white-colored particles floating in her blood. And that's when things really got strange. Um,
0: uh.
1: Ward... This lady has rolled into your ER. Right. What are you thinking? What are you doing?
0: Well, so, you know, whenever there is a... in well, Actually, in disaster medicine and emergency medicine, whenever there is a mass casualty situation, in this case, it's not. But if there's a mass casualty situation where a lot of people are showing up with similar symptoms, garlic odor emanating from the mouth, you know, um, altered mental status, uh, toxicology should be in the differential, and, you know, you should be prepared to think about, hey, are there things that can harm not just the patient, but those taking care of the patient and those around her? The fact that she ended up in one of Dr. Josh's stories means this is not your your everyday cervical cancer sick patient. There's something else going on. Uh, But I would like to get uh, more information and get her vital signs and see uh, how she progresses. Oh, do you want to talk about, um, by the way, this really caught my... Attention! The, the fact that she had her blood smelled like ammonia, and that she had a fruity, garlic-like odor emanating from her mouth—not too many things can cause that.
1: So, before I we continue, you, what do you think? Yes. What do you think some of those things might be?
0: So I looked it up because in my training I remember garlic. Someone smelling like garlic is never, almost never, a good thing unless you were at uh, Pizza Hut. But she, uh, garlic on breath, could be signs of thallium poisoning. Huh. Organophosphate toxicity, which is a which is actually a possible really? terrorist um, attack agent, arsenic poisoning, yeah, DMsO sulfides or sulfur related um, to- uh, toxicity, and whatever that's bothering this lady, if it's not any of the above. We I mean, know
2: she's not a vampire if she's emitting garlic,
0: right? Really. So Important to that's me. off the differential.
2: <laughs> well, so we started in an
1: episode of House. But now we're going to step not into the Twilight Zone, not through the scary door, but into the Daylight Savings Area.
0: (laughs) Daylight Savings Area? (laughs) I don't know. Previous episode talking about toxins, we talked about bitter almonds. If you smell bitter almonds, you should think about maybe cyanide, mothballs, camphor, carrots. If you smell carrots, maybe water hemlock, rotten eggs, sulfur, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Back to our tale, as we take a twisted turn for the strange and unusual. Soon after drawing blood, one of the nurses fainted. Then, the medical resident began feeling nauseous. Complaining that she too was about to faint, the medical resident left the room. While the resident sat at the nurse's station attempting to catch her breath, she suddenly gasped, and lost consciousness. When a respiratory therapist treating Ramirez also fainted, the staff ordered that the emergency room be evacuated. Doctors, patients, nurses, and families all headed out to the parking lot while a small group of brave professionals remained behind to treat Ramirez. In the end, 23 people became ill that night. With five needing to be hospitalized, Ramirez then died 45 minutes later from kidney failure
2: due to her cancer. The part where they couldn't sedate her really hit home.
0: That's <laughs> going to haunt Praza's dreams.
1: There is an epilogue to this creepy story, and it's not going to provide okay, any I'm, answers.
0: I'm sorry, but, you know, she. I don't think Ramirez died of only kidney failure due to cancer, right? I mean, this is obviously a toxicological case. Uh, The entire department got sick, I mean, for goodness sakes. So something obviously toxic was going on.
1: Have you ever heard of any cases like this ward where just somebody's mere presence can infect others with that kind of speed?
0: Uh, Organophosphate poisoning, yes. Uh, That can rapidly spread and uh, quickly, you know, sicken or kill people right around right around the victim. Okay. It's, and, it's all dose. It's all dose-based, you know, so or a little most, bit of, yeah.
1: Where would you most be likely to come in contact with organophosphate poisons?
0: Um, I believe there are some industrial applications for it, like pesticides or something like that, but I, I don't even think we use that here as the states of terrorism. So if, usually you would see more than one person affected. You would see a whole bunch of people getting sick, and that should, you know, that should... Um, Put your red flags up. Well let's, but, let's or, go. Or, or or in the case of like Ms. Ramirez here where everyone taking care of her in the immediate surrounding getting sick that you know there's something um super toxic that's 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 um, coming off of the patient.
1: An investigation immediately following the incident found that those affected the most by the toxic fumes released by Ms. Ramirez were within two feet of her, the people who were handling her IV lines, and were mostly women. The initial conclusion reached was that this was a form of mass hysteria because, you know, we can't trust women. What do they know?
2: Right.
0: Right. Right. Good old-fashioned misogyny.
1: (laughs) Right? However, after, you know, the women rightfully stood up and said, that is a preposterous explanation, the first nurse who was affected by the toxic fumes said if this was hysteria, how would she have spent two weeks in the ICU after her exposure to Miss Ramirez and developed hepatitis as well as a vascular necrosis in her knees? Um, that's you know, that's a pretty convincing mind strip, right. as it were. Now, a further investigation revealed that Ramirez was using dimethyl sulfoxide, a powerful degreaser that Well, she was using it as a painkiller. Others who have used this compound for the same purpose have noted that it does have a garlic-like taste and also explained the greasy sheen on her skin. It's sold as a solid gel, and it crystallizes at room temperature, which did explain why she had particles floating in her blood once it was drawn. It can Mm -hmm. cause blockages and stones that lead to kidney failure, but it's still unclear to this day how it was released as a gas or created such a massive toxic effect on that's those around her.
2: give her greasy skin?
0: I think uh, it's a gel that's kind of greasy in appearance, right? So That's what it's saying, yeah.
1: This actually, interestingly, both of you may be more familiar with it once I tell you we call it DMSO. It's used... Topically, to decrease pain and speed the healing of wounds, burns, and muscle and skeletal injuries. So, it's at this point a rare and off label medicine, but it is still a medicine. So, you know, this is something that we used to prescribe to people and then just came up with better options. None of which explains how this lady is releasing a toxic gas that can, you know, seriously threaten the health of. Not only the healthcare workers treating her, but anyone within a two foot radius.
0: Well, I think if we refer back to our previous episode on toxins, it's probably all in the dose.
1: This is as close as we get to a medical yeah. cold case. But for now, you know, let's step back out of the daylight savings area and uh, move on to our next creepy tale we don't spend enough time in the operating room in the surgical theater with you. Do you have any horror stories oh, from the OR? I
2: had a lot of. Um, I've had a fair amount of unpleasant experiences. Absolutely. In terms of like horror or supernatural, I think one of the uh, most common like urban legends, I guess you could say, about going in for surgery and being under anesthesia, is um. A lot of people talk about out-of-body experiences, like people have reported incidences of um, being being able to watch themselves outside of their body, having surgery, and um, or vice versa, being trapped in their body completely awake and um, feeling and seeing everything and not having any way to shout out or do anything. I think they made movies about this too as well, which didn't make my job any easier, but. I'd say that was probably um, the closest supernatural sort of instance that we could talk about in the OR.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the film you're yes, talking yes, about is called Awake. Yeah, and it's about a young billionaire who needs a heart transplant, and you know, while while he's underneath the knife, as it were, he encounters anesthesia awareness, and then because it's a horror movie, this surgical out of body pain causes him to have a clairvoyant experience exposing the doctor's Mm -hmm. plot to murder him. Not being
2: able to do anything to stop it.
1: Uh, The plan was to poison the donor heart that he was receiving through transplant by injecting it with adriamycin to cause a transplant rejection. Thus... I know, spoilers, but, I mean, it's such an AMG unnecessarily complicated plan.
2: plan.
0: That is horrifying, and that's that can actually yeah, happen. Right.
2: I suppose it's possible. Like, or no. 99% of the time it won't happen. Um, if you have a procedure under what we call MAC anesthesia, more commonly known as twilight sedation, I mean, there are going to be, I mean, it's a lighter level of anesthesia, and there is some positive recall there. Under general anesthesia, it. Almost never happens as long as the patient's receiving some sort of gas. As it turns out, the one one instance where there is a higher risk of mm. um, of recall is actually during open heart surgeries, when um, the patient is being rewarmed as you're getting ready to come off of the bypass machine. That's supposed to be the area where there's the highest chance of them actually remembering something. Yeah.
1: Now, Praz, do you ever see any OB-GYN cases these days? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Unlike most traditional surgeries where you can knock your patient out, I imagine that for a lot of OB cases, there's a lot of screaming and... Well, um,
2: thankfully, with the development of spinals and epidurals, the screaming is relatively minimal. Um, This is, again anything after, like, the 1950s, 1960s-ish. So pretty much all this time before that, there was a lot of screaming and stuff like that. But thankfully not too much anymore.
0: Okay. I mean, but la- even today, labor um, is still well, one of the most dangerous times in a young woman's lifetime. It's, the- I mean... I mean, the infant mortality and perinatal mortality sure, has gone sure. down by a lot, yeah, it, but still, absolutely. there's things can go wrong.
1: And sometimes things going wrong don't always end in death, which brings us to our next spooky medical tale. So up until about the 1960s, probably, there would be a topic mentioned even still in... Obstetric gynecology textbooks known as coffin births or postmortem fetal Whoa. extrusion. Are either
2: of you familiar with a coffin I birth? Don't think I've ever seen a no. Thing like no. That.
0: I mean, neither of us is a pathologist. Yeah.
1: So the earliest documented case. You know, what what do you suppose a coffin
0: birth would be?
2: So I, Sounds
0: like delivery within the
2: coffin, uh, I
0: guess, no? Probably, you know, the, the mother died and later on yeah. you know, gave so birth. So,
1: the earliest the known documented case of coffin birth was in 1500, uh, 1551, when a victim of the Spanish Inquisition, swinging at the gallows, gave birth hours after her execution. Four hours after her death, and while the body still hung by the neck, and this is graphic, folks, so if you need to, cover your ears, two dead infants were seen to fall free of the body. This was noted by the physician on call at the execution as unusual for the short amount of time that elapsed between death and the post-mortem delivery. Yeah. So
0: yeah short amount huh.
1: and here's why the idea of post-mortem birth has been recognized for centuries. You know the Greek in fact, the Greek god of medicine, Asclepius, was cut from his mother's womb after she was killed on Mount Olympus. Medical professionals made very common the practice of opening the bodies of dead pregnant women, aware that live birth was still possible if they were fast enough, and even the Catholic Church, intent upon delivering children from the purgatory of death before baptism, supported this at church doctrine. Priests were actually called upon to perform Caesarean sections on women who had recently deceased to rescue the baby on pain of excommunication. Because in at least uh, Spanish Inquisition Bible times, to die unbaptized was to go forever to purgatory, as noted Mm -hmm. in... Dante's okay.
0: Inferno. We actually, emergency physicians are trained to do what's called a perimortem delivery. If the mother died, um, you have a few minutes before the fetus inside the uterus you know, completely dies. So you you continue CPR to make sure that the fetus is still getting oxygenated blood. You, you can do a C-section. Obviously, that's sure. a different C-section from... Um, from a you know, normal C-section, that's a wide exorcism later. Yeah, so
1: the idea of you know taking a live baby from a dead woman in and of itself is something that our society is familiar enough with that it doesn't quite warrant inclusion in a Halloween episode. But when I'm talking about post-mortem births, I'm talking everyone involved is deceased. And how does a dead body give birth? Dead bodies decompose. During decomposition, this process involves the breakdown of oxygen, which is then accompanied by the multiplication of anaerobic bacteria, or bacteria that grow well in the absence of oxygen. These bacteria produce a number of gases while they make their own food and energy. And the gases they produce, like carbon dioxide and methane, help to contribute to breakdown of the dead body. These are the gases that cause dead bodies to swell up significantly and as the body swells up those gases perform a similar role to the contractions a woman experiences during normal childbirth. So the increased volume of gas in the deceased pushes on the uterus forcing the dead fetus through the vagina and occasionally also causing a uterine prolapse. Therefore, A gruesome simulation of birth is carried out, and that is where it got the name coffin birth.
0: And that was not uncommon back in the days?
1: No, in fact. Or that's. In fact, given. That happened? Given that all it potentially takes for a coffin birth to happen is a death of the pregnant woman where saving the baby isn't attempted, you would think, why don't we hear about this much more often today? That's a good point. Um, And occasionally we still do, although normally in our in our modern times it tends to be largely with bodies that are found either that wash up on the shore or have been murdered or engaged in self-harm because these are people who aren't found and taken to any sort of medical site so why do we not see it more often Uh, you may think well more people are cremated today and while that may contribute the main reason is how we embalm our dead. Since about the late 1960s, early 1970s, we have pumped all our dead bodies full of formaldehyde, a preservative. So these chemicals that are used to preserve the body and slow down the process of decomposition, flush the normal body fluids out and Flush away a significant number of microbes. So, when you remove all these bacteria and the gases and you slow decomposition, you make the occurrence of coffin births extremely rare. And up until, as I said, the late 60s, early 70s, this was still in medical textbooks. Although now you really have to go digging through libraries to find (laughs) too many mentions of it. As a fun fact, do you guys know the difference between a coffin and a casket? Well, a coffin is basically that hexagonal Dracula-style box, the one where you imagine everybody with crossed arms, you know, slowly rising, whereas a casket is just any four-sided rectangular boxes. Um, In fact, you know, Hmm. caskets were originally used for jewelry or items and buried alongside the coffin, you know, pharaoh-style. And it's actually thought that the word casket was adopted as a substitute word for coffin because it was deemed less offensive, especially when morticians and undertakers started operating, you know, funeral parlors instead of mortuaries. They really tried to classy up death. Oh, did you
0: hear about the mortician who caught the flu? He was coughing a lot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you decided to undertake that pun. (laughs) Nice. So, essentially, the only difference between a coffin and a casket is the shape of a box. Now, let's go over a couple other coffin rules before we go to our last ghost story. Um, One of the few general rules about burial is that we all know you'll bury somebody how deep? Six feet under. That is the traditional amount, Mm -hmm. although it's surprisingly not terribly regulated. Um, And the rules for a coffin, it can be covered by no less than 18 inches of dirt which technically means you can bury somebody less than two feet deep in many areas, not counting the amount of space displaced by the coffin itself. Part of the reason it's six feet deep is in areas prone to flooding or high water, bodies can't typically be buried any deeper Mm. than six feet. So that's actually the max, not the start, because they risk becoming waterlogged and Mm, even popping out of the earth like terrifying wooden icebergs. So, this is one of the reasons that early American settlers had to bury their dead above ground in places like New Orleans, because heavy rains and floods would make coffins literally explode out of the ground, which remains a problem yeah, for New Orleans it, ter- I've to seen this day.
2: There are cemeteries over there, they do structure wow. very differently. And this was actually the reason why you started seeing,
1: certainly down in the south, or swampy areas, these above-ground mausoleums that are like tiny little one-room mansions for the dead, because if they were buried underneath, they could just pop up and rise again later with the next yeah. flood. I think we'll close out with one one other ghost story. Now, gentlemen, we have gone over quite a lot of creepy, strange things, and all of them seem to be, you know, easily disproved by science, but This next one, I think, is one of my favorites because it actually managed to be a ghost story that was published in a medical journal. William Wilmer, an ophthalmologist who practiced in Washington, D.C. in the early 1900s, was one of the most distinguished eye doctors of his era. Among his patients were eight different presidents, from William McKinley to Franklin Roosevelt. He had treated Charles Lindbergh, the famous aviator, Joseph Pulitzer, the New York newspaper tycoon, and countless other prominent Americans. But his most unusual claim to fame is the fact that in 1921, he managed to talk a prestigious medical journal, the American Journal of Ophthalmology, into printing a ghost story. (laughs) So, he was an ophthalmologist who practiced in D.C. And there was a family who for a number of months had had a haunting and so the tale he told went as follows the haunting of mrs h mrs h's haunting began as many do when she and her family moved into a run-down old house the year was 1912 and though electricity was available the decrepit abode was lit only by the dim glow of gas lights Trouble started quickly. Mr. H and I had not been in the house more than a couple of days when we felt very depressed. The
2: house was
0: overpowered That's, uh, that's
2: pretty spot on. That's
1: you like so... the voices? I felt like you needed voices.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's A eerie, voice. eerie
1: sounds soon punctuated the silence. One morning, I heard footsteps in the room over my head. I hurried up the stairs, but to my surprise, the room was empty. I passed into the next, and then into all the rooms on that floor, and then to the floor above, to find that I was the only person in that part of the house. Sometimes after I've gone to bed, the noises from the storeroom are tremendous, as if furniture was being piled against the door, china being moved about, and occasionally a long and fearful sigh or wail. (laughs) I know that's not a DC accent, but that's how I hear their voices in my head. Mrs. H and Mr. H were not the only ones in the house to hear the noises. So, you know, everybody did. The husband, her husband, her children, the servants. Things got worse as her family succumbed to crushing fatigue, their bodies racked by pain and headaches, plants mysteriously withered, ghostly apparitions appeared. Inhabitants awoke, paralyzed, to see figures calmly sitting at the foot of their bed, simply staring at them. Then the phantoms haunted their waking days. On one occasion, in the middle of the morning as I passed from the drawing room to the dining room, I was surprised to see at the end of the drawing room coming towards me a strange woman, dark-haired and dressed in black. As I walked steadily on to meet her, she disappeared.
0: Back in the day's... People were just more eloquent. So
1: after soldiering through this for a number of months, pretty much everybody was at their wits' end, and they began to think maybe we should just abandon this clearly possessed haunted house. Then Mr. H's brother came to visit, and after hearing their complaints, he offered a possible solution. He said, "Uh, call a doctor. Your pipes and furnace might be poisoning you. So the next day, this is where our, our physician mr uh mr doctor william wilmer comes into play so he showed up and he was their family physician and found the furnace in terrible condition in terrible condition the combustion was imperfect and the fumes instead of going up the chimney were pouring carbon monoxide into every room in the house so he advised do not let the children sleep in the house another night saying if they did we might find in the morning that some of them would never wake again so everybody vacated the house and all of their problems and symptoms vanished when the furnace was repaired they all returned but the noises and the ghosts right. did not ooh so ward carbon monoxide poisoning
0: i actually <clears throat> that that's actually that's a classic presentation of carbon dioxide poisoning not the ghosts mind you but the um very non-specific symptoms and many many symptoms and everybody in the house is sick i actually had my house moment when a whole family came in and they had headache nausea vomiting diarrhea fatigue i was like oh something's going on and of course you know like grandma was like oh also the stove is leaking gas i was like oh okay well
1: you're like way to bury the <laughs> lead grandma
0: <laughs> <laughs> thanks grandma but that was my husband. When I was like, okay, it's carbon monoxide poisoning. But yeah, absolutely. I I I think uh, Dr. Wilmer deserved a a chapter in the um, yeah. medical journal.
1: So good catch. That's that is all our medical uh, horror movie facts. Our spooky Halloween. That concludes our Halloween episode. But this time, instead of a just the tip, which we've given you creepy scary spooky and poisonous places to be visiting all month i figured gentlemen what is your favorite halloween movie and what will you be doing this year for your trick-or-treating are you dressing up
0: one of my favorite horror films it's not really a horror film but it's festive is hocus pocus i think that was um it was just a fun movie you know these witches nobody's Nobody was scared of these witches. It was just—it was just good old-fashioned fun. Uh, this year for Halloween, I will probably go Do to you a know, pub trivia. every
1: time I watch Hocus Pocus? Ward, and you're right, it's an amazing film. I always think to myself, uh-huh. nobody calls them yabos. Like I don't know where Max got this from.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't—I don't know either. But that was my favorite role for it Sarah was. Jessica it's Parker. It's
1: also one of my favorite scenes in that film. Is. Kathy mm-hmm. Najimy flying away on a vacuum cleaner when she couldn't find a broom. Uh, it's it a timeless classic. What about you, yes. Sandman? Well, What's see.
2: your favorite um, horror film horror and movies. what are your Halloween plans? Um, it's been a while since I've seen a real like scary horror movie. Or is that just me? they're just not scary like they used to back in the day. Favorite movies, I would say. Like, it's the scariest, pretty scary. Um, horror movies that I've seen are the, typically the demonic possession type movies. Um, particularly the Exorcist, especially in the similar spin offs that have come of it. As far as my plans for Halloween, well, since Halloween's going to be on a Tuesday, I don't think I'll be doing anything during like the day or night um, other than working. Three. One,
1: two, process, come <laughs> for you. Three, I will have to sing that for every patient I put to sleep on Halloween, door.
2: especially once they wake up.
1: Uh, my favorite horror film, it's its a tough one for me because the Halloween season is one near and dear to my heart, but it's a toss-up between the original George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, 1968, black and white edition, which, sure. you know, that's zombies are such a huge part of our culture nowadays that... That's really where what we traditionally think of as zombies now began. You know, this is a man who changed a generation.
0: Oh, that's right? where With George this Paris genre Night began.
1: Living Dead is where this zombie genre began. But then again, the 1980s was a great time for slasher movie monsters, and Nightmare on Elm Street's Freddy, and specifically Nightmare on Elm Street 4, Freddy the Dream Master, or the Dream Master, was great because Freddy... He's got the finger claws, you have the Wolverine love, he wears a fedora, so he's a classy dresser. And yet, he takes such pride in his work, going so far as to make puns out of every death. He drowns one kid in his waterbed and yells, how's this for a wet dream? <laughs> so I, just, I like to see somebody that enjoys what they do. So I'm, I'm going to have to go for Nightmare on Elm Street, as favorite movie monster. And I will be attending a murder mystery dinner, which I intend to have a killer good time.
0: Are you participating in the dinner where you get to yes play a part?
1: I have been told ahead of time by the inspector that I am one of the suspects and told to gather for an evening of wine and murder, which is great because that sounds like the best way to be interrogated ever. So, listeners... Tell us what are your Halloween plans. Leave us comments on the Facebook page. We love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. Uh, the show notes are the show notes included at the bottom of the episode have links to all the stories and sources we used, as well as links to where you can support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially. Through our Patreon or Squarespace pages. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Ledger. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all my co hosts and friends. And until next time, as always,
2: travels.
0: happy Ooh. travels and happy Halloween! Sound check, sound check, uh, which please. <laughs> <laughs>